Jesus was crucified around Passover. Actually, you know what? Give me two minutes to just kind of give you an introduction. Go back to Luke chapter 1. Let's, let me start there. Luke chapter 1, who is Luke writing to? Tell me in that very first verse, Luke is kind of saying, here's who I'm writing to. Luke chapter 1, sorry, verse 3, not verse 1. It seemeth me good, having had perfect understanding of all things from the first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus. Now, that may have been someone's actual name, but if you break that word down, Theo, which means God, Phileus, which means lover, it means lover of God. So it could really just be a figment, of, of just a fictitious person, and he's really saying to all the lovers of God. That's how I like to read it, is Paul, or Paul, Luke was writing to the lovers of God. But notice he addresses Theophilus. Now go to Acts chapter 1, verse 1. And all of a sudden you begin to see, do you see the connection? So what would that suggest? Who's writing the book of Acts? Luke. He's writing to the lovers of God. Luke. So there's Luke, and then there's the second book of Luke, which is Acts. So we believe Luke is the author of Acts. Now, what follows Acts? Epistles. Now, the epistles in the New Testament, here's the dumbest thing in the world. Love the King James writers. I love the people who put the Bible together. But this was dumb, okay? They ordered the epistles by size. So why does Romans come first? Did Paul go to Rome first? Where would his visit to Rome go in his missions? That would come at the end, wouldn't it? So why is it first? One reason and one reason only. Guess why? It's the biggest. Romans is biggest. So Romans come first, and then Corinthians, and then we just kind of Galatians. They ordered them by size, and they didn't know if Paul was the author of Hebrews, so they put Hebrews at the end, and they threw in Peter and James and John, and then John's Revelation. So all of those are letters that church leaders wrote, and we'll get into the, apostles, we'll get into the epistles next. But that means the history of the New Testament ends in Acts. We're only going to cover it in three weeks. We're going to cover the whole history of after Jesus in the book of Acts. So turn to the very end of Acts. Let's go to the last chapter of Acts. And let me show you how it ends. Chapter 28, Paul is in Rome. Actually, he's, gone, he's on his way to Rome. He's in Rome speaking to the uh, Jews that are in Rome. And he has one last message for the Jews in Rome. Now go to the very end. Look at verse 28. Here is how the history. Now, this gets lost in the fact that we now do Romans and then Corinthians and all the epistles. And we think that Revelation is the last piece of history. No, the history ends in the book of Acts. Everything else are epistles. And the very end of the history, 
Yeah. Uh huh. Okay, there's your key class. Okay, I'll bring it back. You bet. So the last thing that Paul does, notice verse 22. What does he say? Be it therefore, be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, for they shall hear it. So the very end of the history, Paul basically says, I am taking the gospel from you and giving it to the Gentiles. Joseph, come quickly and take it. And that's us. We are the Gentiles who have been given the gospel in the very end to prepare for the coming. So do you see that transition? So that's why Acts is significant, because it's the history. A lot of it are Paul's missions, because Luke is going to accompany Paul on several of his missions. So clearly his folk, we don't get a lot of Peter, but we get a lot of Paul because Luke is with Paul, and Luke's the one that's writing this. So brief overview, that's the book of Acts. But let's start in chapter 2. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost. So Jesus was crucified around Passover. Fifty days after Passover, they had another feast. So the killing of the lambs was Passover. And then they celebrated the first of their harvest. So as soon as they started to harvest their grains, so fruits come at the end, right? Grains are usually faster. So as soon as the grain harvest starts, as soon as they start to harvest the grain, they would hold what the Jews called the festival of weeks. We now call it the day of Pentecost. It was 50 days after Passover. So look at the cool symbolism. They are celebrating the first fruits of the harvest, and this is the first fruits of Peter's harvest. Because how many people will be converted at the day of Pentecost? 3,000. These are the first fruits of the converts. How many people were with Jesus at the very end at the transfiguration? No, at the ascension. 120. 120 disciples. 120 disciples. And now Peter takes over. And on the day of Pentecost, they baptized 3,000. So there's kind of the transition. But what I want to focus on isn't the history. I want to focus on this list of how do you become a disciple? What makes you a disciple? What are the qualities? And we're going to make that list with the non-disciples. And it's going to test us. Do you lean here or do you lean here? In that area, are you more like an, a, a disciple or are you more like the non-disciple? That's why I like making the two lists together. So chapter two, a whole bunch of people are gathered at the day of Pentecost. Verse two, suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled all the house that, where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as fire, and it sat on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. So appropriately, what's our very first how to be a disciple of Christ? You can distinguish the disciples of Christ by simply 
They follow the Holy Ghost. They seek to be filled with the Holy Ghost. A disciple of Christ is yearning for the Holy Ghost. All right. Then Peter gives his very long speech, and I love Peter's speech, but we're not going to sp- spend some time on I want to get to verse 37. Sometimes church leaders say things that are rebuking to us and, pure, and prick our hearts. Sometimes disciples and church leaders and people with important keys have to tell us that we're doing something wrong. Parents have to discipline and correct. Sometimes bishops have to call you to repentance. Sometimes prophets have to call the church to repentance. So here's the question. What do you do when you're pricked in your heart? What is your reaction when you are called to repentance? What do they do? Look at verse 37. Tell me what they do. What is their reaction to being called to repentance? They ask. They ask what? What shall I do? What shall I do? Do you see that attitude of a disciple? Let me tell you a great story. It's kind of a tradition. We can't necessarily find it written down, but if you are a Brigham, anyone a Brigham Young descendant, this story is told over and over and over again among the descendants of Brigham Young. I can always tell a Brigham Young descendant because they're the first person to tell the story. There's a story told of Joseph Smith in a meeting, conducting a meeting, and asks Brigham Young to stand up in the audience and rebukes him for something he didn't do. I mean, severely rebukes him. How dare you? Blah, 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 blah. And when he was over, every eye was on Brigham. What's he going to say? Brigham Young simply says, Joseph, what would you have me to do? What would you have me do? Brigham Young, or Joseph Smith, bursts into tears, runs down and hugs him and says, Brigham, you passed. And that's the story. Because you can tell a true disciple when they are called to repentance, their attitude is, what do I need to do to be better? Now, this is where we start to contrast the non-disciple. Go to chapter 4. Let me show you how... Look at verse 16. Acts chapter 4, verse 16. They say the same question. They they use the same words initially, but they add to it. When they are pricked in their heart, tell me what happens. Instead of what shall we do, what is it? What shall we do to these men? In other words, how do we get rid of the accusers? They are offended. Nephi says, the guilty taketh the truth to be hard, for it cutteth them to the very center. So here's kind of the contrast. When you are rebuked, even by the Holy Ghost, when you are told you're doing something wrong, do you have the disciples' attitude, what should I do? How do I get better? 
Or are you offended and want to attack and want to take issue and attack the person who's criticizing you? Do you see that contrast? The disciple versus the non-disciple. I just, I just think that's so fascinating. What shall we do to these men? And one of them is, what shall we do to change? All right, back to chapter two. We're going to jump back and forth as we try. I want to contrast a couple of these. So pricked in their heart, what shall we do? Versus cut to the heart, what shall we do to these men? All right, verse 38, Peter says, repent and be baptized. Disciples of Christ, repent and make covenants. You can recognize disciples because they are constantly making covenants with Christ. But then verse 40, I think this is a significant. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Disciples are not afraid to be different. I'm not afraid to be different. Now, I've got to balance that. Let me show you a fascinating little insight. Lehi talks about a straight and narrow path, right? You all know Lehi's dream and the tree and the, the path. Lehi describes three paths that come off the straight and narrow. One of them is the forbidden. Can't even spell today. The forbidden path. Some people leave the path because they're just enticed by sin. But then Lehi mentions another path. He says some people fall into strange roads. I've thought a lot about that. Why would people go down strange roads? Why do people act strange? They need to be seen. I need you to notice me. My value is based on how many people notice me. That's a path off the straight and narrow. It's being strange, doing strange things so that I'm noticed. But then Nephi adds one more path and he calls it the broad road. Why would we make a broad road? Why do we make big, wide roads? Did you hear they're going to widen 90th South? Oh my gosh, the construction's going to drive me crazy. They're going to widen 90th South as if it's not broad enough. Why do we make broad roads? Yeah, real broad roads. So more people can go. So what's this path? Tell me what's the broad road off the straight and narrow. The path that everyone is going down. The path of being like everyone else. So there's a balance here between I don't need to be seen and I don't need to be like everyone else. I'm not the person who has to be noticed, but I'm also not the person afraid to be different. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. I'm not afraid to stand up and be different.
Now, on our non-disciple list, go to chapter 4. They don't know what to do with um, Peter and John. No, go to chapter 5. Sorry, go to chapter 5. They don't know what to do with Peter and John. They don't want John preaching, but they don't know what to do. And so, ah, where is it? Hold on. Maybe it is in four. I can't find it in five. Oh, there it is. 21, 421. Duh. So they don't know what to do with John and Peter. They don't want them preaching in the name of Jesus. They, do, they stop preaching in the name of Jesus. But they're afraid to do something hurtful to them. Why? Verse 21. Acts 4.21, so when they had further threatened them, they, they told them, verse 17, they threatened them that they should, speak, they should speak henceforth to no man in this name. Don't talk about Jesus anymore. We'll get to what Peter says in just a minute. But notice verse 21, they, when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing that they might punish them. Why? In other words, they're afraid of what people will think if we punish Peter and John. Because the people like Peter and John. And the people liked Jesus. And that's why they couldn't, that why couldn't they arrest Jesus in the, when he was at the temple? And so do you see the contrast? You've got the disciples who are not afraid to be different. I'm not afraid. To be different. We're going to see that several times in Peter. And then you've got the non-disciple who is crippled because I have to live in this world of being approved by people. You see that contrast? And so my, I would ask, are you one of those that is terrified of being different than the crowd and standing out because you might draw some attention? Are you going down a broad road? Because I just don't have the courage to stand up. Or are you like the non-disciple and are afraid of the people? I think that's a distinguishing characteristic of disciples. Let me show another one that's a real contrast. Um, Well, let's just, let me continue the list. Let me just, we'll pause in just a minute, but let me just continue the list. Go back to chapter two, verse 41. Here's another contrast. Tell me how disciples receive direction and instruction. Chapter two, verse 41. How do disciples receive instruction? How do disciples respond when the prophet speaks and tells us, to change. I mean, President Nelson's talk last conference was a huge rebuke, right? I mean, it was a major rebuke. What was he saying? Be nicer, wasn't he? Stop being mean. Stop saying mean things. Stop contending. Stop fighting back. Guard your tongue. How did the disciple receive President Nelson's counsel? Verse 41. Gladly. 
How does the non-disciple, go to chapter 4, how does the non-disciple receive it in verse 2? Grieved. They were grieved. Now, I'm going to pick up here. Look, 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 look at verse 9. Let's do a non-disciple first. Because speaking of President Nelson, speaking of President Oaks, there are people who, when the prophet speaks, it fascinates me that non-disciples listen intently to conference. Have you ever noticed that? They don't go to church. They don't read the Book of Mormon. But every conference, they are glued to it. Because why? Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. Tell me what the non-disciple is doing. Examined of the good deed done. The non-disciple is sitting on the edge of their seat hoping they say something that I can use to attack them. So you've got the disciple saying, what do I need to do? How do I change? I receive it gladly. And then you've got the non-disciple who is grieved and examines good deeds. Well, I think it's interesting, like in, in chapter 2, um, 41, if you click on received, it says teachable. And then in chapter 4, it's like they couldn't learn it. So they were, it's almost like they were experiencing godly sorrow because they want to, even though they feel, I don't know how to explain it, like it's almost like a jealousy type of point of view. Isn't that interesting? And they couldn't wrap their head around what the other disciples were learning. Yeah. It's like when people claim that we think we're better. Right. That's what they, you, that, how, how, how did you get that out of what we just said? But can I use a similar, but let me use a, a kind of an interesting illustration. You guys ever read the Chronicles? You know I love C.S. Lewis. Have you ever read the Chronicles of Narnia? The first one is the creation of Narnia. It's not, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is second. The first one is the magician's nephew. And it's the idea of how Narnia is created. Now, two young people come into Narnia, and one of them brings his cranky old uncle who's into magic. His name is Uncle Andrew. When Aslan creates Narnia, and by the way, how does this beautiful, how does Aslan bring Narnia into life? He sings it. He sings it into life. It's music that creates Narnia. What does Uncle Andrew hear? Growlings. All he can hear when Aslan speaks is the roaring of a lion. And then this is how the story goes. So kind of picking up that, that whole are you listening or are you jealous? Yeah, are, you being teachable? are you being teachable or is that the resistance? Listen to this story. Listen to how um, C.S. Lewis portrays the story of Uncle Andrew. I love this. And I think it's exactly what you're talking about. Um, ready? We must now go back a bit and explain how this whole scene had looked like, had looked like from Uncle Andrew's point of view. It had not made at all the same impression on him as on the cabbie and the children. For what you see and hear depends a good deal on where you are standing. 
It also depends on what sort of person you are. When the lion had first begun singing, long ago when it was still quite dark, he had realized that the noise was a song, and he disliked the song very much. It made him think and feel things that he did not want to think and feel. See, there's, the je- there's that jealousy, right? Then when the sun rose and he saw that the singer was a lion, he tried his hardest to make believe it wasn't singing and it never had been singing, only roaring as any lion might do in a zoo in our world. Of course it can't really have been singing, he thought. I must have imagined it. I've been letting my nerves get out of order. Whoever heard of a lion singing? And the longer and more beautiful the lion sang, the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe that he could hear nothing but roaring. Now, the trouble with trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed. And Uncle Andrew did. He soon did hear nothing but roaring in Aslan's song. Soon he couldn't have heard anything else even if he had wanted to. And when at last the lion spake and said, Narnia, awake, he didn't hear any words, only a snarl. Now, quite a bit later, Uncle Andrew is just a pitiful heap. And Polly says to Aslan, please, Aslan, could you say something to unfrighten him? I cannot tell that to this old sinner, and I cannot comfort him either. He has made himself unable to hear my voice. If I spoke to him, he would hear only growlings and roarings. O Adam's sons, how cleverly you defend yourself against all that would do you good. Do you see that? If someone doesn't know the character of God or Christ, they're not going to want to see it that way. So, like, if they already come to their own conclusions of, like, he's a mean God, they're going to try and find every, like... Every mean possible interpretation. Yep. Because that's what they're looking for. When you're looking at Christ's character and you know that it's good, then you're going to be able to accept it and you're not going to be close off to it. That is so profound. The problem with trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is you quite often succeed. If you think God is cruel, you're going to see in everything that he does cruelty. If you see God is kind, you're going to see in everything that he does kindness. Beautiful description. And do you see that contrast? We see it clearly in Acts. All right, any other thoughts? Um, I do want to point out, okay, go to chapter 4. Um, verse 11. This is, this is a beautiful moment of Peter. Now, do you remember the Peter who denied knowing Christ three times? Fast forward just a few days, I mean, a few weeks. And Peter stands up and says in verse 10, be it known unto all you 
and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised up from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you whole. That is the new Peter. This is the same one who denied, I don't know him, I don't know him. And now he stands up and says, be it known to all of you that we did this in the name of Jesus, whom you crucified. But then he says in verse 11, now here's my point. This is the stone which was set at naught. Let me write two phrases on the board. One phrase is set at. New Testament is O, right? The Book of Mormon is A. Did it, is it an O here? Okay. <laughs> set at not. The Book of Mormon will do an A, but the, not, the Bible is O. Set at not. So think about that phrase. Set at not. Jesus is the stone which was set at naught of you, builders, which has become the head of the corner. Wicked people, the non-disciple, will set sacred things at naught. Turn with me to 1 Nephi chapter 19, verses 7 through 9. we got to read 9. Seven, 7 and 9. I guess we can skip 8. But we got to read 9. You can't read 7 without reading 9. So notice what the non-disciple does. Okay, who wants to read seven? Beautiful verse. First Nephi 19, seven and nine. Got it? Seven and nine. I got both of them? Yep. Okay. For the things which some men esteem to be of great worth, both to the body and soul, others set it not, and trample under their feet. Yea, even the very God of Israel do men trample under their feet. I say trample under their feet, but I would speak in other words. They set him at naught, and hearken not to the voice of his counsel. Now jump to nine. And the, wor- and the world, because of their iniquity, shall judge him to be a thing of naught. Wherefore they uh, scourge him, and he suffereth it. And they, made, and they smite him, and he suffereth it. Yea, they spit upon him, and he suffereth it, because of his loving kindness and long suffering toward the children of men. So you are setting something important at naught. Don't set at naught. Now, Totally if different concept using very similar words. Turn back to Acts, but go to chapter 5. So Peter and John are preaching. They thought Christianity was dead with Jesus' crucifixion, right? They were hoping that this whole movement was over when Jesus was crucified. And now Peter and John just baptized 3,000 people and are preaching and people are coming. And they're frustrated that it's growing. So they, they go to kind of this wise old Gamaliel. He was brilliant. And they said, what shall we do? And he gives them this beautiful advice. Turn to verse 34. Acts 5, 34. There stood there up one of the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel. A doctor of the law had in reputation among all the people and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space. And said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do as touching these men. For behold, before these days rose up Theodos, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 4,000, joined themselves, who was slain, and all, as many as obeyed, were scattered and brought to naught. 
In other words, it just went away. It brought it was brought to naught. And this after this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing and drew away much people after him. He also perished, perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. Now therefore I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of man, it will, that's my other phrase, come to naught. Meaning what? It'll just disappear. It's just going to die. It's just going to go away. If it's of men, it will come to naught. If it's of God, you can't fight against God. So leave them alone. Because either way, you can't win, right? If it's of man, it'll disappear. It'll come to naught. If it's of God, you can't fight against God. So you just can't win. So leave it alone. But that phrase, come to naught. Now, let me just see if I can. In, in, in making our list of who's a disciple and who's not a disciple, do you know the difference between things that come to naught and things that are set at naught? Are you foolish enough to spend time with things that come to naught at the expense of things that are set at naught? Do you see that beautiful idea? Let me give you an example, then we'll hit you. Let me give you an example. When I was in high school, my friends were my world. My little brother and my little sister, not so much. They were annoying. My friends were my world. But here's what I didn't understand then. Today, how much time do you think I spend with my high school buddies? And even that, hardly ever. How much time do I spend with my little brother and my little sister? A lot. But what did I do to my little brother and sister in high school? What did I do to them? I set them at naught in favor of something that I wasn't wise enough to see the difference between things that will come to naught and should be. It doesn't, it doesn't mean I shouldn't have hung out with my friends. It should, it should have meant what I should have done is spent more time with my brother and my sister. I didn't. I excluded them. And then my brother died. And I never got a chance to after that. Do you see that? Do you see the difference between the disciple and the non-disciple? I know what will come to not. Now, social media. We spend so much time on social media and almost everything on social media, what would you say? will come to naught. And what do we set at naught because we are spending so much time with things that will come to... Do you see what I'm trying to say with that list of disciple and non-disciple? Now, I'm not saying social media is evil. I'm saying 
don't be fooled and overemphasize things that will come to naught and neglect things that are set at naught. Uh, it just made me think of like the doubt your doubts. You doubt your Great example. Great example. Yeah, so it's like instead of just like instantly going, it's like, nope, this ruins everything I've learned for. Kind of learn it out, fill it out, and then eventually those doubts will. That's a great example. Have you noticed that leaving the church is kind of trendy? It's kind of hip. You know, follow the crowd and leave the church. And then if you follow the crowd and leave the church, tell me where that path usually ends up. Lost. So do you know the difference between things that are set at naught? and things that come to naught. My car, one of the most haunting things I ever heard, true story, one of the most haunting things I ever heard when I was growing up, true story, I know the man, had a Porsche. One day his little four-year-old son was playing with a hammer and was hitting his Porsche. The father took the hammer and hit his hand. The kid's hand? The kid's hand. Okay, I was like, it's still really bad. <laughs> True story. Ow. Now, do you think that Porsche is still being driven by that man today? I hope not. No. But that little boy is still there. He set at naught because of something that came to naught. I knew a man who bought his dream car and wouldn't even let his wife drive it. Wouldn't even let his wife drive it because she might mess it up. And I just thought, set at naught because of come to naught. Do you see the wisdom and the foolishness I'm trying to point out? Any other examples? It's a couple hands. Did anyone have anything you wanted to add? So are you one of those that gets caught up in what is being said at naught and overinflate something that's going to come to naught? Have you ever watched a movie and afterwards you were mad at yourself thinking, I just wasted two hours of my life. I am no better now because I watched that movie. I could have done something much more pro productive than watching that movie. That movie came to naught. Now, I, I, I think there's great value in entertainment and laughing and being together. And my wife and I love summertime where we just, we watch a movie almost every night because we can sleep in the next day and she picks one, I pick one. And it's kind of a bond. I get that. But there are movies that are just complete wastes of my time. And then there are things that I've set at naught that would be tremendously beneficial in my life. You see that difference? Okay. Um, let me show you another one. Kind of, I'm just trying to show these, the contrast. Let's go to the end of chapter four where they live the law of consecration. Verse 32, chapter 4, verse 32, they were of one heart and one soul, neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed 
was his own. Everything I am, everything that I have is God's. And if God wants it, he can take it. And if we need it for his purposes, you bet. Verse 34, neither was there any among them that lacked for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. There's an attitude among consecrated disciples that says, I don't need that, you take it. It's called the law of surplus. The law of surplus is, this is what I need. Now, if in this month, if in January, I bring in this much, how will we live the law of consecration? Let's, let's talk long-term law of consecration. We've consecrated. I've received my stewardship. Now, what do I do? The next? I don't consecrate again. I don't make more than one consecration. I give everything I have to the church, and then I receive a stewardship. And then what happens? Well, we live the law of surplus. So let's suppose this is what I need for myself and my family. And in January, this is what I take in. What do I do with that? That's what I give to the church. It might be 10%. It might be 20%. It might be 2%. I just give the church what I don't need. Now, what happens if in March, I bring in that much? And I don't have quite enough. Now what happens? then the church provides this much. We just live the law of surplus. And we just give the church all that I don't need. Now, isn't that something we could live today? I could just simply say, look, I have time or talents or I don't have money. I'm a teacher with 10 kids. I don't have surplus money but I do have surplus in other areas. And you know what, Lord, it's yours. Everything that I have is yours. That's the attitude of the consecrated disciple. Everything I have is his. Everything that I am is his. Now contrast that with chapter five, right at the very beginning, Ananiah and Sapphira sold a possession, verse two, and Chapter 5, verse 2. Kept back part. I'm unwilling to give him everything. I hold back. The non-disciple is just not fully committed. Are you finding your, do you find yourself occasionally in your life holding back part? Do you keep back part? Now here's the irony about the law of consecration. How much of God's possessions is he willing to give us? Will God keep back a part of anything that he owns? Therefore, all he asks is what? What does he ask? And it's fair. If he's going to give us all that he has, what does he ask in exchange? Would you be willing to give back all that you have? If I say to God, I'll give you most but not all, then it would only be fair then that God says to me what? 
I'll give you most, but not all. And that sounds like one of the other kingdoms of glory. I'll give you most, but not all. To whom does God give all? That's it. And it's only fair, right? It would be hypocritical for me to ask God to give me everything that he has, but not be willing to give God everything that I have. The disciple says, Lord, it's all yours. Now, how often does he take it all? Never. But he asks for me to be willing to give it all. The non-disciple keeps back part. I don't want to give God everything. Well, that's fine. But your reward will be asking God to keep back part of his blessings. I believe you decide how much he blesses you. You decide how much God blesses you. If you want God to forgive you, what must you do? Forgive others. If I'm unwilling to forgive someone else because they owe me, if I say I'm not willing to let go of what you owe me, then what am I asking God to say to me? Then I'm not willing to let go of what you owe me. If I want God to release me, then I need to release them. If I want all that God possesses, I need to give all that I have. All right, we better stop. That's a great list. As you read next week, come follow me. As you read those first few chapters, take the list. I'll text it out as soon as we're done. Take that list, add to it, make it your own, and say, what are the qualities of a disciple? And what are the qualities of the non-disciple? And then let's all examine our lives and say, are there areas of my discipleship that I need to shift into this category? It's easy to get caught up in things that come to naught, isn't it? It's easy to be grieved. It's easy to fault find. But may we be disciples. May we say to Heavenly Father, you have everything that I have. Whatever you need, I'll go wherever you ask me to go. Heavenly Father turns around and says, I'll go wherever you ask me to go. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.